You're listening to the Revelation Podcast. In today's episode, Dr. Neil Sawatsky looks at the woman who rides the beast. Who is she? Let's jump right in. Here is Pastor Neil Sawatsky. We are in Revelation chapter 17. So glad that you made it back here tonight to study this phenomenal chapter. I do want to say that the book of the Revelation just becomes more precious as as the years go by, not because anything has changed. It is exactly the same it was when it was written in 95 AD. So when John penned these marvelous words of the vision that he saw of Christ and the returning and the events related to that, he wrote them down, and ever since it's been there. It's not always been known or understood. It's not always been preached, but the fact is that it's been there, so it's not new material, but it is new to us when we study it. One of the outstanding books, it's very ancient, so it goes way back, way back. I don't recall what the dates are even, but was a guy by the name of Hislop. He wrote a lot of history, and, and he wrote about those very things really gave a very clear presentation of the days of Nimrod, how it developed into Babylonianism, how Nimrod's wife, Semeris, had a son, Jebus, and this continued to become a worship thing, and Israel even got hooked into this worship thing of a false son altogether. He did an amazing thing. He called it to two Babylons. So this was just really an amazing book. Then Dave Hunt came along, 10, 15, probably 15, 20 years ago, he wrote a book called A Woman Rides the Beast. He has done a phenomenal job. If, you, if you're looking for some very helpful and a lot of factual material, uh, Dave Hunt's book on The Woman Rides the Beast, if any of you care to read it, I have a copy of it, so if anybody wants to borrow it, you can. I'm done with it for the time anyway, so you're, you're more than welcome to uh, to have a look at it, but if you want to buy a good book, that would be a good one to read. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with everything Dave Hunt says. I've heard him in person. I've I've, uh, I've known him somewhat, and I know that there are some things that I think he's a little overboard on. I think there's some things that he maybe might not have the clear picture on it, but I'm telling you one thing. He's a scholar, and he has a lot of really, really helpful information. Then on the other choice, of course, is always read your Bible. So read Revelation chapter 17, and I was mentioning to you last time, as I mentioned in the bulletin, we're going to see how Revelation 17 explains itself. So this is really the neat thing about the, the Bible. When you come into something that appears to be so complicated and appears to be such a challenge, just read it, and all of a sudden, it tells me what it means. Do you ever get that? It tells me. It, it tells me right here. So why are we guessing? Why do we need scholars? Why do we need anything? So that's where we are at Revelation chapter 17. So we are looking tonight at A Woman Rides the Beast in uh, the 17th chapter of the book of the Revelation. Some artists have some an amazing, uh, just some amazing concept of uh, what this might look like. Uh, so when you look at this chapter and you see a description of a woman riding a beast, she has a chalice in her hand. That's a cup of wine. Uh, it's not really wine. It's a cup of the blood of the martyrs. So if she's holding a cup with the blood of the martyrs in it, you know that this cannot be a good, cannot be a good woman, and it cannot be a good sign that this sort of thing is happening. What I want you to do is I want you to notice that also, that the 17th chapter tells us at the approximate time when John saw this vision. For we read, there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials. When do the seven vials take place? Remember, we have, this is the 70th week of Daniel, which is seven years. Okay, so we have seven years. When we come to the first set of judgments, there's seven, the, 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 the seals. We come to the second one, the trumpets. We are now on the third one, the vials or the bulls. When do the bulls' judgments take place in the time, in the last three and a half years? Probably about midpoint of the three last three and a half years, or thereabouts. We're not specifically told about that. But, but the key here, you'll notice, is that there's there the the seven angels are pouring out their judgment by virtue of pouring out the bowls, the material that's in there, 
And he talks to John, and he says, I am going to show you what is going to happen to the woman. Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. So here we have the idea that she's sitting on all kinds of waters. That has representation of people. So when, when, when Antichrist comes, or the false beast comes out of the waters in Revelation chapter 13, it means he comes out of the sea of people, is what it means. And this is what we have here in chapter 17 and uh, verse number 1. So, so this is the idea, is... We have the woman riding the beast. We, we, we will try to explain that. Uh, to understand Revelation 17 in its entirety, and I don't mean by this that we understand everything about it, but what I'm suggesting is that if you know history, you know your Bible, you have a pretty good handle of what Revelation 17 is talking about. Of course, considering that you believe the Bible. So, and I know that everybody here does. So, looking at this, I want us to look at chapter 17 and the first, uh, the first 18, the only 18 verses there, where we see Babylon and the beast. So, the question tonight is, number one, who is the woman? Who was the woman in Revelation chapter 12? Chapter 12 is Israel. The woman in chapter 12 is bringing forth the man-child whom the dragon seeks to destroy immediately. And when Israel gave birth to the Messiah, the child of the, the Son of God, immediately Herod and some of the others sought to exterminate by killing babies all around Bethlehem with the hope that the man-child would be destroyed before he had any opportunity to go anywhere. So already the dragon was at work back 2,000 years ago when the Son of God was born, but... The revelation points shows to us the woman that gave the son. Now we have the woman that doesn't give us the son, but we have a woman here who would be, I suppose he would, she would have no use for Jesus Christ whatsoever. I suppose she would have no use for us. I suppose she would have no use for anything that would stand for righteousness. Uh, this would be uh, Jezebel would be a good term, but I think this one is worse than Jezebel. I don't think that there has been anybody in the existence of the entire history of the world that comes close to being like the woman that is described here. And so we want to see several things in verses 1 and 2. We notice that the kings of the earth have consorted with her in idolatry, and therefore she is called the harlot or the whore. So we've read verse 1. Now, if you look at verse 2 with me, look at very carefully at verse number 2. When this gives you kind of, little by little, the chapter unlocks itself, as you notice this, because it says, With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made to drink with the wine of her fornication. So... Uh, since we see that the kings of the earth have consorted with her, they, they, they have in a spiritual sense, I, it, you know, I don't doubt at all that if it were possible that they would also do this in a literal sense because these big boys do this kind of stuff. But I think it's more referring to the spiritual sense in which the kings of the earth were committing spiritual fornication, spiritual harlotry, with this personage. So this personage is not leading them to goodness, not leading them into the ways of God, but rather leading them into the destructive paths of, uh, of, uh, of wickedness and of sin and rebellion against God. So that's the first thing about who this woman is. The second thing we notice in verse number four, and that is that her clothing suggests both royalty and wealth. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. So this is really picturesque language. That which is in her hand is representative, full of abominable things. There are very few things that the Bible calls abomination. Those things that the Bible calls abomination are irredeemable 
behaviors. These are behaviors that are extremely bad. And so this woman is holding a cup full of that and of the filthiness, the, the stench of, of the uh, type of whoredom that is true of this woman. But also you notice that the, the, the appearance of this woman indicates that there is extreme wealth involved. Now, uh, when you have lots of money, you have lots of influence. You got lots of money, you've got lots of power. The, uh, the woman that we have here, whoever she is, and we haven't yet come to that conclusion as we speak, but whoever she is, she has been able to accumulate very large sums of wealth. And I can only think of a few systems in the world that have this kind of wealth that the Bible would actually talk about or indicate the, uh, the representation of, very, of great wealth. I was speaking one night on the book of the Revelation and talking about this kind of a situation, and a young man came to me who was just studying economics at the uh, Memorial University in Newfoundland, and uh, he came to me and he said, Pastor, he said, I want to just share something with you. I said, I would be happy to hear from you. And he said, I, I am studying economics, and he said, I'm not at liberty to say too many details, but I'll tell you what I think I am allowed to tell you just the same. He said, in our study of economics, one of the systems that we have gone through thoroughly and studied is the Roman Catholic system. And, and he said, the, you talked about certain systems accumulating the, the trillions and trillions of dollars worth of wealth and so on. He said, I cannot tell you what, but I can tell you this, that you haven't even come close to the system that is known as the Roman Catholic system. He said, this is... He said, the only term I can think of is a filthy, rich system. Okay, so, uh, I mean, that, that doesn't give you figures, and, and he, wasn't at, uh, he wasn't allowed to do that. But the fact is that there are a very, very few systems in the world that have the designation of being so wealthy. You, you can go to just about any country in the world, and you can see the most... Uh, beautiful facilities are where a few people are gathering for the mass. This is true in Bolivia, it's true in third world countries, it's true in India. Uh, once in a while you see a tiny little shack known as a Catholic church where they gather for the mass, but, but you see some of these elaborate buildings. Where do they get the money from? Where does it all come from? Well, I'll tell you, there's, there's an accumulation of wealth with the system that is, at least if not the head of it, is connected with this whole system here. An unbelievable amount of wealth. So we have that in verse 4. We also notice in verse 5 that on her forehead there is a name. If you look at verse 5, and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abomination of the earth. Now, here's, here's a picture of a woman riding the beast, and uh, it tells us about these various characteristics offered in the first four verses. But then if you notice that she is labeled, whether that is actually a literal label or not is, is, is hard to tell, but it might be, uh, because of what she represents, because of who she is, and because of what she does in this particular setting. She has actually an inscription that identifies her as the mother of harlots. So if you have harlotry, and then all of a sudden you've got the mother of harlotry, you obviously have the head chiefs. You have the person that is in charge or the person that is leading that. But you also have not only the harlotry, but the abominations of the earth. So she is in the leadership of both harlotry and abomination. So this tells you that there isn't anything, not even a spark of good, in what is represented in Revelation 17. We have, we have depravity to its depth. We have the horrendous activity of moral debauchery such as not been known uh, that is represented here. Uh, I, I, I just want to just insert again. I was just doing a little bit of reading, and, and uh, I just wanted to know the, the status of popes down through the history of the ages since the... Roman system came into being, and, and uh, I just looked up 
on internet, on Google, and that sometimes you get good information, sometimes you get really lousy information, but I just did the ten top popes in, in the wickedness of the era of the system, and they, they did itemize different ones. One pope uh, was responsible for siring many children, and he gave to at least four of his sons top positions in the mafia over in Italy. Now you can believe it or not, and uh, I mean, there's, there's, there seemed to be an article that was reputable, and uh, so I said, okay, that's very interesting. And then he recorded about five or six popes who had been assassinated, and then he recorded a couple of popes that had been beaten to death by jealous husbands who found them in the bedroom of their homes with their wives. You say, I can't believe the popes would do that. They would do it. They would do it. Listen, fellas. Unless somewhere along the way you were castrated, or somewhere along the way you were born a eunuch, you are a red-blooded man, you're going to do what these boys do. That's just the way it is. You're just going to do it. That's why celibacy doesn't exist. How do we know this? What's the most recent scandal involving the papacy and involving some of the higher-ups within the system? Some of the, some of the worst scandals recently has been the cover-up of the abuse of boys and young men uh, by high-ranking bishops and officials. The Pope himself was accused of covering this up, and now he is really busy firing this bishop and that bishop and that bishop, you know, getting rid of them. He didn't do that before. But now that the accusations come out, he's redeeming himself. So if there's a record of, I got rid of this abuser, I got rid of this abuser, I got rid of this abuser. When we lived in St. John's, Newfoundland for 10 years, there was a there was a place called Mount Cashel. It was a boys' home. It was a Roman Catholic boys' home. The, the abuse of the boys sexual abuse, physical abuse, other abuses, I mean abuses galore, had become so rancorous and had been so so many times known and reported that ultimately they tore down the boys' home and said, Newfoundland cannot have the memory of this kind of thing in, in this province. And uh, the, the big brothers were, I don't know if they're called big brothers, they're just called brothers, they were responsible for most of it. Then you have your priestly fellows. These are all supposed to be celibate. These are all supposed to be people who are not doing this kind of thing. Uh, anyway, just wanted to mention to you that there is a religious system that fits the picture. And it's religious. It's got more people than you can shake a stick at. They're over a billion strong, so it's not a small organization. They are all over the world. So... Uh, so now, now this woman who is riding on the beast, this woman that is controlling the beast, she's got this identification that she is the mother of harlotry. Babylon the Great, mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth. Uh, we see in verse number 6, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Uh, again, whoever this woman is, uh, whoever she actually represents, I just want you to know that there is no one in the whole history of the world that has put more Christians to death than the Roman Catholic Church has. Their torture has been so unbelievably cruel, I don't even want to describe it here tonight. Uh, both against Jews, uh, against um, people who refuse to go to the Roman Catholic way, and uh, people who have been so severely abused, mishandled, and put to death by the many, many, many thousands. There are so many things that have happened within that system. And now we see here in the description in verse number 6 that this woman is drunk with the blood of the saints. She's, she's drunk with 
people who died at her hands, people who died at the hands of a of a system, and uh, they are the they are the the martyrs for Jesus. They are the martyrs. They are the ones who were believers. So you have all the way through the early history into the dark ages. Into the dark ages, the the abuse and the killing of Christians was just something to do. There'd been nobody more warlike than this system. Uh, you've had popes that have been war leaders that have sent their troops out in various places of the world to amass property, to amass wealth, and so on. And this has all happened down through the history of the New Testament. So, so this system would fit the picture very well. I don't think this is all of what the system's about, but certainly it is. It is not anything separate from the Babylonian system that we see recorded here, and from the Babylonian system of history. So she's drunk with the blood of the saints. Verse 15 tells us something very interesting, and that is that uh, he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the poor sitteth, are peoples. That, so when you go back to verse 1, remember that in verse 1 we are told that the poor there is sitting upon many waters, and you say, okay, how do you get the idea that those are people? In verse 15. You see, it's not just an idea. The Bible says so. So I say, the Bible explains itself. Not always, but in, in most cases. So here we have, the she sits on, the water she sits on are peoples, their multitudes, their nations, and their tongues. So she is sitting over a lot of the world's population. She has a lot of power over much of the world. So she's, she's, representing, she's sitting upon those who represent various human societies. Uh, she is supporting the beast. The, the beast, that's Revelation chapter 13. The beast is the person that comes out of the waters, peoples, multitude of peoples. That beast comes as the one who seeks to take the place of Christ. We've often used the term antichrist, and I do. But it's kind of like Satan in the beginning. When he fought against God, what he did was, he says, I will be like him. I'm going to be in that throne. I'm going to be like him. Yea, I'm going to be above him. So this personage that comes to Revelation 13, he does the same thing. He comes into the temple that has been rebuilt in Jerusalem, will be sometime in the near future. He'll go into that temple, and in that temple he will declare himself to be God. And he'll say, I am I am whom you are looking for. I am the God you are to worship. And it's at that point where the Jews who are in the tribulation will recognize at that very moment of time when the false Christ comes into the temple, it is then that they will realize that we've got a false leader here. They supported him and they, they, they acknowledged him to be their leader, but now they recognize that he is, in fact, the one who is taking the place of Christ. Do you know what the vicar of Christ on earth is? The vicar of Christ on earth is the one who takes the place of Christ. That's what vicar means. Uh, so if you have that, you've definitely got, if not the uh, definition of it all, you've got a system that supports it. And that's what we see here. We see not only that this personage, this woman that rides the beast, not only does she support the beast, but at this point, she controls the beast. Now, those of you who like news and those of you who like doing a little bit of research in that, I don't know if you've ever done this or not, but I, I just wanted to find out how many world leaders have actually gone to meet with the Pope of Rome. And you know what? I don't think there's one that is missed. I don't think there's one that's missed. So why do why do the prime minister, the president, the uh, the queen, you name the various representatives, leaders of all of the countries in the world, why do they all need to go and talk with the pope? Why do they all you have some of these even in their primary when they're looking to be leaders, they even go and see the pope. Uh, Billy Graham went to see the Pope. Other Christian leaders have gone 
to see the Pope. Why is it that everybody in the world that's got any kind of a leadership position needs to go to the Pope? That's a, that's a mystery. Uh, what are they talking about? What are they asking him? Oh, I know that there are some people who say, well, they're just asking for his blessing. They're just asking for him to pray. Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. There's much, much more involved in that. All right, so he is the, this, this woman that rides the beast, then, uh, she's got some sort of a power over this false Christ. She's got some kind of power over the pseudo-Christ where she is kind of giving direction here as to what's happening. So if the president of the U.S. goes to see what shall I do here, and the Pope says, well, this and this and this, the prime minister goes, he says, this and this and this, the queen goes to the Pope, what's he doing? He's directing these political people. He's directing the kings of the earth. You see that? This is what is happening with a woman that's riding the beast. She's got the reins of the beast. That's what the picture represents. And she's enjoying her filth and her corruption. She's enjoying what she's doing. Uh, I just want you to notice that she is a great city. That, uh, according to verse number 18, who reigns over the kings of the earth. So she is reigning over. Is she the queen of the earth? Well, the Bible doesn't call her the queen of the earth. The Bible just says that she is a great city. And the Bible says as a great city, she is ruling over the kings of the earth. And that city is Rome. Uh, the Vatican itself is a separate state altogether. The Vatican has no head over it except for the Pope. And so it is an entity that exists on its own and governs itself, but it has so much, so much power that every person in leadership in the world finds it necessary to go and have an audience with the Pope. Now, what I want us to do is just go back in the middle. We go back to the verses again. And if you go to verse number 7, okay, we, we've just kind of given you a picture of the woman in chapter 17. Now, once you go to verse 7, and it is here that I read this, And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman. Ah, now all the guesswork is gone. I'm going to tell you. The angel says, John, why are you scratching your head about what you've just seen? He said, you need to know who this is. And he said, not only am I going to tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which hath the seven heads and the ten horns. Okay. So you saw that critter at the very beginning. You saw that creature. Who knows exactly what that thing looked like, but it's obviously grotesque. But it has seven heads, and it has ten horns. This is where your knowledge of history comes in. Some of you already have it. Some of you could teach this lesson. I know that. But I just want, I just want for those of you who may not be as well acquainted, for those of you who may not be as well versed, I want you to understand this, because you miss this, you miss all of what the prophecy of the Word of God is all about. This is, this is central to it all. So if you recall, back in Daniel's day, there was the king of Babylon who had a dream. And that dream represented was a representation of an image, an image with a head of gold, with the torso of silver, uh, with the midsection of brass, and then with the legs of iron. And then you have, at the extremities, you have the ten toes, which represent iron mixed with clay. So that's what you have in the image that's represented in Daniel uh, chapter 2, and then again in chapter 7 with the beast. Babylon is the head of this image, and that is Iraq. Now not a world threat. Iraq now subdued. Desert Storm took care of that. And uh, and Hussein, of course, is no longer rebuilding Babylon. He, I don't know if you know this or not, but Saddam Hussein actually had a structure being built on the site where the ancient tower area, not exactly on the site because that foundation is still there, but in that area he was building a palace and there was a brick inside of that which says Nebuchadnezzar II. So Saddam Hussein called himself Nebuchadnezzar II, and he wanted to rebuild Babylon. 
So he wanted Babylon to come back and have the same power that it did, and that's why he was trying to move in on Kuwait, and that's why he was trying to obliterate Israel, and that's why he was trying also to wipe out Iran, so that he could gain the power. Well, the U.S. intercepted, and he couldn't do that. But going back to the ancient times, you have Babylon, and then that was followed by the kingdom known as Persia. That was a major world power during Daniel's day as well. It overcame the Babylonian Empire. The uh, Persian Empire was captured by the Grecian Empire. Alexander the Great, very young man, died at the age of 28, but he already had captured so much of the world and as I mentioned before, he tried Afghanistan and he failed. And I've always, I've always mentioned and I've always said that if Alexander the Great couldn't capture Afghanistan, nobody can. So U.S. couldn't. They've been there fighting. Russia couldn't. They were there before. They You just can't. You can't win in Afghanistan. Alexander the Great couldn't. Uh, so Afghanistan stands on its own as a unique force. But, but the Grecians had power. And, of course, the Grecian Empire divided into various sectors. That was followed by the Roman Empire. So, let me assure you that the whole picture of the Bible represents uh, these four empires as being very, very significant to the understanding of the whole unfolding of the plan of God in reference to prophecy. So, who would argue the point that these nations existed? There's no one. I mean, every historian will talk about these. They don't necessarily look at them in significance like we do, but every historian will tell you that these nations actually existed. So much of culture and so much of drama and so much of uh, points of interest are centered around the Roman times and around the people who represented the various personages in the Roman times, so there's no doubt when Jesus was born, the Roman authorities were in power. The Romans were controlling Judea. So all of this was happening uh, back in those times. Well, we have that. But we also have, in this image, we have Rome too. And what do we mean by Rome too? We have the revival of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire never was captured by anybody. Babylon was, the Persians captured it. Persia was, the Grecians captured it. Greece was, the Romans captured it. But Rome did never get captured. Rome never was overpowered. Rome was never destroyed by any other entity, by any other nation. Rome only divided into two sections, the east and the west. Now, does this picture begin to make sense to you? You've got Babylon as a unit, you've got Persia as a unit, you've got Greece as a unit, then you have Rome begins as a unit, but then it divides two ways. And because it phased out, it kind of lost some of its control so that Rome has not been in charge. Uh, they were in the time of Christ, they were very much in charge, but they kind of lost control of all of that. And so the, the, the book of the Revelation, chapter 17, talks about a beast that was but is not, but will be. Okay, the beast that was, the beast that is not, the beast that will be, that's the revived Roman Empire. Now, let me ask you very honestly tonight, how many of you have heard a teacher, maybe a very good teacher, get up and say that Antichrist will be a Muslim? Anybody? Anybody here? Two? Three, some, three, four of you have heard that. Um, you know, I, I, I'm usually not very bashful, but I just want to say to you that, that the idea that the Antichrist being a Muslim, just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It, it, there's nothing in the world that will show that it works. It, it's contrary to everything in the Bible. Now, now, it, it could be sold from a popular standpoint. It could be sold from a practical standpoint. Because the Muslim forces are huge. and But but yet, the Muslims are not going to go pretend to be God because for them to go against Allah is sacrilege and would be worthy of capital punishment. This treason, they wouldn't do that. There's no Muslim that would do that. So he couldn't be a Muslim. Many other reasons why he couldn't be a Muslim. This image represents a confederation of ten nations in the toes. And of those ten nations, we have yet another nation coming out, another king coming out of those ten. 
But right for now, I just want to mention it's, it's, it's the Roman Empire, number two, that comes back and is restored. So, Revelation 17 talks about seven kings. Uh, look at verse number eight. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottom's pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. And this was the verse I was talking about the last few services to get you going for a little bit of study and get to know this chapter tonight. And I looked at that and I said, wow, I said, I'm going to have to have some wisdom to understand this chapter. But, but listen to what John said. The angel says to John, and John says, the mind that hath wisdom. So it means that we should not be ignorant of Revelation 17. What is he saying? Here's the mind that hath wisdom. What does the mind that hath wisdom understand? Okay. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now, seven heads, seven mountains. You all know that the city of Rome is built on seven hills, right? But I want you I want you to understand a little something about that. They're hills. They're not mountains. The Bible talks about mountains. I was reading David Levy's book on Revelation chapter seventeen. David Levy is a true blue Jew, works in Chicago, he's with the Friends of Israel, and has a phenomenal comprehension of Jewish history and Jewish prophecy. And 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 David Levy said there are far more than seven hills around Rome. He said, there's not. There's seven that are named. They have names to them. But he said, there's far more than that. I said, oh, very, very interesting. All right. But the mind that hath wisdom says the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. What are, what are they? Okay. Uh, and there are seven kings, verse 10. Do you notice that? There are seven kings. Five are fallen. One is, and the other is yet to come. Okay, now let's 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 just follow this a little bit. Uh, just just wanted to show you this. Uh, this these are the size, my wife showed it to me this morning because she borrowed my old old worn out worn up Bible from years and years ago. What I used to do is I had this Bible with these wide notes, and I would put my sermon notes on the side like that, so you can see how many pages I write out for a sermon. All right, so. So I looked at that this morning. I said, okay, that's, that's neat. I'm going to show that tonight. So, so I had written on the side of Revelation chapter 17, verses 9 and verse 10, that the Babylonish influence uh, over the empires, that people who have astrological beliefs, and they would all do, uh, and it lists all seven of these in this really old, uh, not 100 years old, but old. Uh, so, so that... That, that was something I came across many years ago, and I put a jot inside my notes, and I preached that. I think I preached it here probably, so you will remember. Some of you will remember that, a few of you. Uh, but here are the seven kings, okay? I put it down here so you could actually read it. Let's read them with me, please. You have number one, you have Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, Rome too. Okay, now... Let's look at these seven kings. Come back with me, if you would, to verse number 10. Okay, there are, there are the seven. Which five are fallen? Egypt is. Assyria is. Babylon is. Persia is. Greece is. These five are fallen. One is, when John was writing, Rome was still in power. Okay, so one is. That's the present tense. Not referring to the tribulation period, referring to when John wrote it. One is, and one comes. Okay, that's the revived Roman Empire. That's the Roman Empire comes back. So you've got, you've got the connection of these seven kings that follow the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. See, God gave that dream to Nebuchadnezzar so that the world would understand the Gentile history from the Neo-Babylonian era all the way through to the end of the tribulation. It's a picture that God painted. So it's important for us to understand that. It's also important for us to know and uh, that, that it's the Roman Empire that comes back into power. And if we're wrong on that, it's not something that's going to be earth-shattering. I just don't think we are. I just think that's how it all plays out.
Then we notice in verse number 16, right? We have in this chapter, we have this woman. She's riding the beast. She's controlling the beast. She's drunk with the blood of the martyrs. She is a diabolical person, and uh, she is uh, representative of everything evil. But looking down at verse 16, the ten horns. Who are the ten horns? Those are the ten kingdoms. Daniel's picture of the image that has ten toes on its feet. Uh, these are the ten kings. Uh, there are more than ten kings in the European Union right now, so we don't know how it's all going to play out. And I wouldn't even venture a guess as to all how that comes out in particular detail. But we know that in this period, when the vials are being poured out, there are ten kings. And these ten kings, these ten horns, which thou sawest, verse 12, are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet. So in John's day when he was writing, they did not yet receive a kingdom. But they received power as kings with, uh, with, uh, for, for one hour with beasts. So one hour doesn't mean 60 minutes. Revelation talks about the one hour. It talks about a very brief period of time, just a very short time. So that these ten kings who are in the tribulation period, they consort with the beast and they have power with them. Verse 13 says that these have one mind and they will give their power and strength unto the beast. So all ten of these will say, whatever you say, we will do. Whoever is in charge here of this kingdom now, these shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So these ten kings of the revived Roman Empire in the line of Babylonish thought, in the line of Babylonish secularism, which I described last week as the world's greatest, greatest empire, they will come together and their purpose is to make war with the Lamb. You see, what John is seeing here, we looked at Revelation chapter 14 about the wine press. We looked at Revelation chapter 16 about the Armageddon and all these nations that come together in Megiddo and to do the battle. Now John sees not only the secular industry of the kings and the authorities that do this, but he sees the great religious system. Remember, Revelation 13 talks about a religious system. Now we've got this major religious system that is getting involved and it is declaring war against the Lamb. Is all religion right and godly? Is all religion leading men to God? I tell you, no. Not all religion does. You name me a religion that does not have the gospel at the center of its structure, and I'll tell you a religion that is secular and humanistic and will cause people to not follow the ways of God. The gospel of Christ needs to be heart and center of every religion, every church, every system that preaches the gospel. We must never be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's, that is so clear from Scripture. But as you look down at verse number 16, And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, they will hate the whore. So it's, it's not a love relationship that will take place with this whore sitting on the beast and his kingdoms controlling them they will actually have a disdain for this personage. They shall make her desolate, naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. They will do all in their power to bring this religious system that is controlling the empires of the world to naught and to bring them to destruction. This is a gathering representation of the World Council of Churches. The World Council of Churches is a conglomerate of 365 various organizations that come together under the banner of the World Council. And they have their purposes, and they get together and they do their thing, whatever it is that the World Council of Churches does. It, it's a secular system with some godly language in it. You have some clerics in there with cloaks and robes and various function of religiosity involved in the World Council of Churches. 
and and they are very very busy. Two thousand September two thousand eighteen was the last time they met. Not very long ago. We're September twenty three today. So sometime this month, this group of people met for their purposes and for their purposes to unfold. Someone has made this comment that it is not unusual to meet the Pope, all world leaders do. In fact, he said, all the world leaders of our time always find time to go to the Vatican and to meet with the Pope. It is almost mandatory. That's really revealing. The World Council of Churches is a global fellowship that includes 350 Protestant, Orthodox, Anglican, and Independent churches representing more than 550 million Christians in over 120 countries. How many countries are in the world? Save time, 195. Okay, 193 of them are a part of uh, a secular secular society and world council. They're, they're part of, uh, no, not the world council, but United, the uh, United Nations. It's the word I'm looking for. Sorry, not the council. United Nations. The Vatican and Kosovo are two that are not. Okay, those are the only two countries in the world that are not a part of the United Nations. That's why I call that the world's largest empire. But here you have the World Council of Churches. They represent Christians in over 120 countries. That just about covers the world. Uh, the Catholic Church is not a full member, but cooperates closely with the World Council of Churches. The World Council, 10 weeks after Pope Francis visited the World Council of Churches in Geneva as a pilgrim in quest of unity and peace, church leaders of different churches representing the World Council and the Roman Catholic Church are meeting in Germany this week to continue their task of walking, praying, and working together. Now, there were some evangelical people who decided that we would do better by joining forces with the Roman Catholic system. Uh, and it was known as evangelicals and Catholics together. Some people think that's really a great spiritual thing, fulfilling John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is a prayer for unity based on the knowledge of Christ. John 17 is not a prayer for unity based on human things. It is based on unity in Christ. You understand that? Not based on political things, not based on social things, not based on common things. It's based on understanding Christ. So now you have the evangelicals that come together and they say, we need to be at one with the Catholics. Does that raise a flag with anybody? There, here's some names. Some of you will recognize, some of you will not. You have Charles Colson of the Prison Fellowship and Southern Baptist Convention, affiliated with them. You have Kent Hill and Eastern Nazarene College. You have Richard Land, Christian Life Commission of Southern Baptist Convention. You have Larry Lewis, Home Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. You have Jesse Morand, Assemblies of God. You have Brian O'Connell, World Evangelical Fellowship. You have Herbert Schlossberg, the director of the Fieldstead Foundation and co-author of Turning Point. A Christian Worldview Declaration with Marvin Olasky, John White, the Geneva College, and the National Association of Evangelicals, and then you have J.I. Packer, who is a British-born Canadian Christian theologian in the Low Church Anglican and Reformed traditions. So these are these are the uh, big names of the people that said, "Yes, we need to we need to tie bonds back with the Roman Catholic system." Interesting. Uh, here are the Roman Catholic signatories, not that you'll know any of them, but just so you know that this is documented. There's, and I don't call them father, so I'll just call them by name. Juan Diaz Villar, Society of Jesus and Catholic Hispanic. Avery Dulay, Society of Jesus and Fordham University. Bishop Francis George, Missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate, Diocese of Yakima, Washington. Uh, William Murphy, Chancellor of the Archdiocese of Boston. Richard John Newhouse, who's a Lutheran, Archbishop Francis Stafford, Archdiocese of Denver, George Weigel Ethics and Public Policy Center, and here are the evangelicals that endorse this. Okay, you have your people that signed it, you have the people that are evangelicals who signed it, Catholics who signed it, and now you've got the endorsement by these following Protestants. You have William Abraham, Perkins School of Theology, Elizabeth Ochtimer, Union Theological Seminary in Virginia, William Bentley Ball, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 
Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ, you have Bishop Billion Fry, Trinity Episcopal School of Ministry, Os Guinness, Trinity of Forum, Richard Mell, Fuller of Theological Seminary, Mark Knoll of Wheaton College. Then we got Thomas Oden of Drew University. We got, of course, James Packer, who did sign it as well as endorse it, Regent College in British Columbia. Pat Robertson, the man who ran for presidency from the 700 Club a while ago. John Rogers, Trinity Episcopal School of Ministry. You get a very large, large body of evangelicals and Protestants that are saying we need to be at one with this system, this system that is so intertwined with the whole Babylonian system. It's, it's as Babylonian as Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's into mysticism, it's into false gospel, it's into all kinds of things that are that are just certainly not biblical. You've got structures that bypass the Bible, tell us that they gave us the Bible, so therefore they control what the Bible says. This is really, uh, really a dangerous thing. But what I want you to see here is this. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God should be fulfilled. Do you remember Pharaoh of old? Do you remember how God hardened his heart so Pharaoh would ultimately fulfill the will of God and God would break down Pharaoh with might and with power? These people here who are going to come and make war against the Lamb, these people here that are going to come and fight against God, God is directing them because they're ungodly, because they're secular, because they're mystery Babylonish type of influence of evil permeated throughout the entire history of the world. They are going to come and God is going to say, I need to bring you together so that we can wipe the system. The kingdom of God coming to the earth following this will not be infiltrated by this system. This system is going to be wiped clean. I mean, wiped out so that that system does not come into the kingdom. The kingdom will be a place of peace and purity and many wonderful things that the Bible promises. We're not going to live like we are now in the kingdom. It's going to be completely separate from all this nonsense that goes on in the world. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Rome? Is that who it is? If I have any wisdom, then that's what I would conclude. That's what we have there. As I mentioned this morning, the church needs to wake up. I think that we are semi-awake, but there are a lot of churches sound asleep, and they're just going right down the path of this whole system. God help us to know where we're going, to understand, and to walk in His ways. Thank you for joining us today for this podcast. To hear more messages from Dr. Neil Swatsky, you can visit openbible.ca.